this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And this is a very special bonus episode and the first of a bonus segment about firsts. So this is pretty exciting. And to help me with this very special, super bonus packed episode is my good friend and coworker, Eve. So let's get to it. So now we are joined by a good friend of mine and coworker Eves. It's good to see you again. Yes, <laughs> you've heard uh, from Eves on the episode we did around um, invisible disability, and we're going to do this segment that we hope will be a regular segment um, about female first. And we spent a, a decent, not embarrassing amount of time <laughs> trying to come up with an acronym for it because I love doing. Uh, ridiculous acronyms a la S.H.I.E.L.D. from uh, Marvel movies. So right now we're working with female uh, first empower. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll you know? <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> this has to be done, though. We're not giving oh, up Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Please write in with your your suggestions. I actually came up with one of these for the other podcast I do, and, like, no one will get on board with it. And I'm like, it's time for another segment of plate. And they're like, ugh, Annie. Um, <laughs> uh, but you can also hear Eves on this day in history class. And one of the reasons I am really excited to have you on here is because part of doing this show I've just come to realize there's so many women who have done amazing things that I'd never heard of or was never taught about. I can say that I've ran into that a lot, too, doing this day in history class. And I'll just get so excited when I found out things about women, too. Like, oh, my gosh, they did this. They did this. Everybody needs to know, you know? Yes. (laughs) So I think even if there are people that we know about, maybe we don't know everything about them, and then there are people that or who we haven't heard of at all. So I'm excited, too, to be able to talk about people in history. Who did amazing things. Yeah, and, and put a spotlight on on women who have either been erased or just never gotten the spotlight they deserve. Um, that's something we talked about in our Wikipedia episode of just how many women mm-hmm. kind of forgotten to time. And um, yeah, I'm a big, big history nerd. So I uh, am very happy to, to include this. And um, today you have... Two two women um, who kind of, uh, there's a couple of similarities, some more important than others. <laughs> I was like, their names both start with M. Did you go through a whole checklist of like similarities and differences? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I can see you doing that. I do intensely. like a good list. I really do. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about them. But I want to talk about firsts, first in general, because I think there's kind of some... I don't know, hesitancy over celebrating first sometimes. I do think it's really important to look back in history and see how things started and see how they snowballed on from the things that happened um, in the beginning. Um, Like things have precedence. They don't just come out of nowhere. And I think that that can get a little lost sometimes. So it's definitely important to recognize the first women, the first black people to do this, the first Native American people to do things like we have in today's episode. But... um, I think that there's an argument to be had about the value of first because it kind of is like one of those things that sounds really nice and really pretty on paper, 
But there's definitely an argument to be had about the value of firsts, especially when it comes to firsts when they are mixed with, like, gender and with ethnicity, because a lot of the times there'll be a first woman to do something and then a first black woman to do something. But a lot of times people weren't recognized for the very reason of that ethnicity. Right. So it kind of does, in a way, at times, overshadow people's achievements in history. So, yeah. I don't know. How, how do you feel about it? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think um, it's kind of, like you said, a nice, it's a nice thing, and it is important because we've talked about time and time again, seeing yourself represented directly impacts what you think you can do. But at the same time, it is, it's a complex, there's like a lot of people behind that, right? And a lot of people that were probably forgotten. Um, and again, going back to Wikipedia, um, there's just so many women um, or other marginalized people that did the thing and mm-hmm. then weren't recognized for it. Right. Um, so I do think, like, first are important, but you should always, and I'm just a big proponent of this in general, have that context behind it. Like, why were they the first? Or, mm-hmm. like, were there other people that preceded them and made it possible for them to do the thing that we're also not recognizing? Exactly. And and the way you put it makes me think of how sometimes first get shoehorned into things, like start adding on a bunch of adjectives and qualifiers to make a thing a first. Right. Like the first this and then the first that and the first this and the first. Um, We had an episode on this same history class on the first jazz recording, which was by a band of white men. And we know that jazz has history in African-American communities. Um, And it's still a thing of note to talk about. We did talk about it. But there's also a history behind that first jazz recording. And there was a reason that a white band was the band that got to have that recording in the first place. So I just want that awareness, you know? Like, just because something is a first doesn't mean that there's not another history behind it that's just as notable. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah, so do you want to talk about our first... Our first our first, first historical <laughs> guest on the show today. Our, our first, first first historical guest. <laughs> I like this. And also, now I'm going to come up with, like, my own first, like, the first Annie to have a podcast with an EY um, <laughs> doing a first segment with Eves. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're going to go in history books now, I Annie. Know. For that reason, not Speci- all the other things you've done. <laughs> no, specifically this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, let's get into it. I'm excited to talk about both of these women. Yeah, so... Um, Our first woman is Maggie L. Walker. The L is for Lena. Um, So I guess I want to just set the scene first. Mm -hmm. So at the time when Maggie Lena Walker was alive, or just in the beginning, um, women didn't have the vote, and she was born right off the back of the Civil War, essentially. So she she grew up during the Reconstruction era, which is an era when President Lincoln began planning the Reconstruction of the South. And so at this time, there were many people who were enslaved, who were newly declared free. So it was a time of major upheaval, like, essentially. Um, There were things like black codes, which were laws that attempted to undermine black people's freedom, and people were desperately trying to hold on to that system of slavery at the time, which showed up in things like sharecropping. And lynchings and segregationist policies were also really big. These were Jim Crow laws that we're talking about. So, But at the same time, all of these things were happening— Black people were also becoming more involved in the political process, and education was playing a huge role in the way that Black people were interacting in 
the community and churches as well were a big part of that. So there was, it was just a turbulent time, yeah. basically. And this was the period that Maggie Walker lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I think it's just really cool in general to think about women specifically or black people specifically who are making moves in such a transitional period. Yeah. Um, it's really inspirational, right? <laughs> I know. Like, don't forget how inspiring. That's another thing that's important about context is like, wow. <laughs> yeah, because I'm thinking like, oh, like I think so. I really don't want to put these dishes in the dishwasher today. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait a second. Maggie Walker was <laughs> born right after the Civil War ended, and she started a bank, you know. So I don't know. Yeah, that's another thing that I like, I like to think about first <laughs> yes. is that they're, they're really inspirational when you put them in context and yes. you complain about Stupid things like me. Oh, the dishes are not stupid, Eves. <laughs> I mean, that is a fair complaint. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> the first Black-owned bank that was chartered in the United States was the Savings Bank of the Grand Fountain United Order of True Reformers. It's oh. a serious name, so you know it's serious. Wow. Um, and that was founded on March 2nd, 1888, and it opened on April 3rd, 1889. So... That was the first Black-owned bank that was chartered, but the first U.S. Black-owned bank that actually opened was the Capital Savings Bank, and that opened in D.C. in October 1888. So there was stuff brewing before Maggie Walker came along, but in 1903, Maggie Lena Walker became the first woman in the U.S. to charter and become the president of a bank. So she was the first woman, period. Right. Not just Black woman. She was Black, but she was the first woman in the U.S. to charter and become the president. And this was in... Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> and I say it like that because Richmond was once the capital of the Confederacy. Yes. Um, and it is also an hour away from Charlottesville. <laughs> um, so, you know, just think about the history of yeah. this place where she was opening a bank. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was you know, researching her, I saw, I found two laws that I thought were really interesting that were active at the time. And one of them was Apparently in Richmond, and probably a lot of other places, but Richmond, uh, you couldn't, once you got married, you had to say goodbye to a job. I saw that. What? Right. Oh, man. So she, when she got married, she had a job as a teacher. She got married, and then her job, she had to give it up. Yeah. And she wanted to do big and great things. So I guess, not that teaching isn't amazing. No, no, no. I'm not saying that, but you know. She stayed active, like, her whole life doing things. But, yeah, that's, that's, that was a really—it's like, wow, that's very specific and— What a law. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, she, um, she volunteered a lot, right? There was an organization that she volunteered a lot at. Yes, there was. She, she ended up being involved in a lot of organizations, and I'm going to get to a list of them later because <laughs> it's really a mouthful. And if you want to come up with an acronym for all of her organizations that uh, she's been in, I challenge you to do I so. I accept this <laughs> challenge. I just got really excited about that. <laughs> so I guess I'll go through her background a little bit first so you see how she became this person who was so involved in all of these organizations. Mm-hmm. She was born in 1864 in Richmond, Virginia, as I... Um, mentioned earlier, and her mother was Elizabeth Draper Mitchell, and she was a formerly enslaved assistant cook for Elizabeth Van Lu, who was a union spy, a union spy, yeah, <laughs> and abolitionist who she kind of ensured the education of her servants. And Maggie's biological father was an Irish American man that her mom had met on the Van Lu estate. Mm-hmm. So the two of them didn't marry, but shortly after Maggie's birth, 
she got married, her mom, Elizabeth, got married to a man named William Mitchell, who was also at this estate, but he was a butler. And William became the head waiter at a hotel a little bit later in Richmond, but unfortunately, he was later found drowned in a river, which was a very, like, sad point of, you know, a sad part of Maggie's life. Yeah. Because his death was ruled a suicide, but Maggie believed that he was murdered. Mm-hmm. Really sad. But at age 14, she joined the Independent Order of St. Luke's, which was the organization that she became a lot more heavily involved in over the course of her life and actually was until the end of her life. Um, and at first, it was an organization that helped the sick and the elderly in Richmond. It was a burial society at first. And then as it grew and developed, it turned into a fraternal order and a life insurance company. Hmm. Um, it was a black organization, if I didn't say that already. I'm not sure. The order provided financial and social support to people. And they did things like lend it money to people who had financial difficulty and raise money for members who had health problems. But after... Maggie's mom's husband after her husband died, um, Maggie really began to work with her mother to help her out financially. So she helped her mother on the laundry business. So she delivered loads of clothes to people as part of her mother's laundry business. And laundry was one of the the few things that Black women could do at the time that, that was accessible to them as work and domestic work in general. And I'm sure you know how important domestic work is in the history of women. Yes. Um, so... We'll get to that later. But um, so at this time, she kind of started realizing the social gap between black people and white people in America. So she went to the Lancaster School and she went to Richmond Colored Normal School. And then after she graduated in 1883, she went and she started teaching in the public school system, which leads to your point. Right. (laughs) Of when she gave up her job because she was married or she had to give up her job because she was married. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, So Maggie was a part of the Independent Order of St. Luke's. As I said earlier, she started being involved in that organization as a teenager. And the ISOL started providing, like, these weekly sickness and disability benefits and death claims for members beginning in 1895, which is very important because at the time, white-owned firms denied the black community access to disability and life insurance in that Jim Crow era. So that was a big deal, like it provided a lot that people didn't have in the black community at the time. So over time, her, Maggie's leadership in growing the membership of the organization really allowed more payment of death claims and lower costs for premiums. So she really helped the organization in that way. And Maggie's contributions also contributed to the development of modern African-American communities that provided services like business and real estate financing and education, food and clothing and things like that. So that was important at a time when communities or black communities specifically were building in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so the over the course of her life, we'll call it the IOSL. That's still kind of hard, but the right. name itself, Independent Order of St. Luke's, is also kind of a mouthful. Mm-hmm. So we'll call it the IOSL. Um, so she did a lot in the IOSL. Yeah over the years of her life. That was something that she was heavily involved in. And so in 1895, she co-founded the juvenile department at the IOSL, which provided leadership opportunities for Black children. Um, Kids were taught things like financial responsibility, work ethics, and hygiene skills. Um, Running the gamut here. Yeah. (laughs) 
At one point, the order began giving kids metal pocket banks so they could fill them with money and then open a savings account at the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank, which is her bank that she founded, which we'll get to a little bit later. Mm -hmm. And so in 1899, she became the right-worthy grand secretary (laughs) at the Independent Order of St. Luke's. Uh And at the time that she became that, the order was like, it was kind of dwindling. Like there were only a few thousand members and it was in debt. And she really built up the organization to over 100,000 members in 24 states. And she made it this kind of vehicle of economic empowerment for black folks and for women. Mm -hmm. The order also collected $3.5 million over the time of her leadership while she was there and built up $100,000 Yeah, built up $100,000 in reserve. And she held that grand secretary position until she died. So she was committed to the cause. Yeah, she was. (laughs) And she also employed a lot of black women um, at the organization. She donated to black schools, especially ones for girls. And she wanted women to have the same employment, the same professional opportunities that men had. And she wanted girls to be able to envision having those kind of opportunities as well, careers outside of teaching and domestic work. Mm -hmm. So on August 20th, 1901, um, at the annual convention of the order, she called for another black bank. There were only about 20 in the U.S. at the time. So she said the following. She said, first, we need a savings bank. Let us put our monies together. Let us use our monies Let us put our money out at usury among ourselves and reap the benefit ourselves. Let us have a bank that will take the nickels and turn them into dollars. So she was really into this idea of economic empowerment and Mm -hmm. kind of self-help and really building up communities in ways like that. So she also, at the same time, like in 1902, she began publishing the St. Luke Herald the newspaper of the Independent Order of St. Luke's. And she used that newspaper to, it was distributed to people, but she used it to encourage Black people in Richmond to establish their own institutions. And by 1916, the paper had 4,000 subscribers. So as we can see, she was just really, like she was really innovative and she was really trying all these new things to to get things going. And she was trying to use this kind of I was going to say Holy Trinity. <laughs> well, she was she was trying to use this trinity of the paper and a department store that she later opened up and the bank to create this, like, bustling and thriving part of the Black community in Richmond. Right. And like we said, this is when things were—it was Reconstruction and things were bidding, getting built. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love that she opened a department store. Yeah, it didn't do so hot. Um, it ended up closing. I think it opened in 1905, and it closed in 1911 mm-hmm. um, because black people weren't supporting it. Um, and that's not—I know that can sound bad. Well, the black people didn't come out to it, and they should have done this. But it's kind of like they felt that pressure at the time from white-owned businesses. They thought that there would be repercussions for them visiting that business as well because white-owned businesses and white people were pushing back against the store because— Maggie was trying to use it as this place where that would feel safer for black people to go and would also employ a lot more black people. Mm -hmm. But because they didn't get to where they needed to be financially, it had to close. Yeah. Yeah. So things fail sometimes. I don't think that should detract us from our missions, do you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, I don't know where I'd be. I'd just be at home watching Pixar movies. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) 
sorry. Thank you <laughs> so for that so pity, sad. Eves. I, you know, I don't turn it down. I'll <laughs> accept it. I appreciate it. I believe in you, Annie. Thank you. I know that that's not what will happen with your life. <laughs> this is not a, like, hit on Pixar movies or anything. That just made me really sad for some reason. So <laughs> there were a lot of racial stereotypes at the time that discouraged white bankers from loaning money to black people and because they thought that black people wouldn't repay the loans, mm-hmm. uh, stereotypes like that. And if black people were given loans, they were often charged a higher rate of interest than white customers. I mean, we don't have to get into payday loans. <laughs> we don't have to talk about lending practices today, but... There are precedents for things. Um, A lot of things have been going on a long time in the United States when it comes to marginalized communities. But um, a lot of white-owned banks did accept deposits from black customers, but some didn't. And those managers thought that black customers would scare away the white people who were coming into the business. So Maggie knew that it wasn't the best idea to go to these white-owned banks and that there needed to be black-owned banks that black people could patronize. So she wanted to be the person who could create that bank. So she was already clearly into women's empowerment and the empowerment of Black people and building up communities. So the bank was just part of that. So she started building up her banking and her accounting and her business skills by studying banks that were in Richmond, Virginia. She recruited Emmett Burke, the head teller from the True Reformers Bank, which was the bank that we talked about earlier, the first Mm -hmm. Black bank that was chartered in the U.S. And so... After all that happened and she built up all her skills and self-educated, she opened the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank on the first floor of St. Luke Hall on November 2nd, 1903. The goal of the bank was to encourage savings and facilitate loans. And yeah, she became the first woman, period, to charter a bank in the United States in 1903. Yep, uh, that's, uh, I love the name. I don't know why, but... Like saving pennies, I've just had a, a good experience with every place that I've been to that's got that name in there. Mostly bars, but penny the word the, the word penny in their name. Yeah, interesting. So, are you a person who picks up pennies on heads, but not pennies on tails, or do you not pick up pennies at all? Oh my gosh, I actually feel a deep pang in my heart every time I see a penny, and I'm like, <laughs> this is so sad because if no one picks you up, you're just out of our money circulation. Yeah, it's just like lost money. That's so I happen. pick it up every time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel, yes, and this is going to be so embarrassing because I'm going to sound like a cheapskate saying this, but I'm going to come forth. <laughs> yes. I'm going to speak my truth right now. Do it. I can't stand when people don't give me back change at, like, restaurants. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I hate that. I'm like, do you know how important these nickels are to me? <laughs> this is my life. <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm yeah. the same way because um, I have to pay for laundry still. And I'm always like, this is laundry money. <laughs> right. I need this. <laughs> Don't take this from me. Yeah. And it happened a lot when I was in, I feel like, L.A. Oh, <laughs> People yeah? People like change in L.A. L.A., what's going on? Cheapskates. Like yeah. Let does. me not offend any L.A. listeners. Well, no, no. Listeners from L.A. They just have the money to give those nickels away. <laughs> if Write in with your experience <laughs> with the nickel situation in L.A., please. We, we need to know. <laughs> please do. I would love to. <laughs> We have some more about all of these first to share with you listeners, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. 
Um, so by the end of the first day of the bank's business, after Maggie opened it, it had over $9,000 in deposits. And by January of 1906, savings deposits were $170,000. So that provided opportunities for home and business loans. And by 1920, the bank had financed over 600 home loans, allowing for significant real estate holdings among the Black community in Richmond. So it was just a a snowball of things that were able to happen after she opened this bank, Mm -hmm. basically. And most of the female account holders there were domestic workers as well. So her, Maggie's vision for the bank was like she wanted multiple branches in Virginia and a branch in D.C., it didn't really work out like that in the beginning. Um, only There was only a branch in Hampton, Virginia. But it was successful over the years, and it continued to grow, especially in the beginning. And it helped really ensure the existence and longevity of the middle class of Black people in Virginia or mm-hmm. in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And so in 1929... There was a stock market crash, which would have affected the bank, and yeah. as it did a lot of banks and other businesses. Um, so Maggie had the foresight. She was a smart woman. She was a smart woman. And she merged the St. Luke Bank with two other black banks mm-hmm. in the area, which were the Commercial Bank and Trust Company and the Second Street Savings Bank. And in 1930, the bank became the Consolidated Bank and Trust Company. And Maggie was the chairman, or chair person. The chairperson. She was the chairperson. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and the bank continued to operate as a Black-owned institution until 2005. Wow. When, yeah, like a long time. Yeah. When it was purchased. Thank you for recognizing how amazing <laughs> that is. Um, when it was purchased by the Abigail Adams Corporation and then the Premier Bank bought it in 2011. So at that time, it was the longest operating Black-owned bank in the States. Um and that brings us to contemporary times. Um, but during her lifetime, uh, a bank wasn't the only thing that she was involved in. Like, she was also politically active. She was socially active. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, these were ready days in, in the United States, and there was a lot to fight for. Yeah. Um, so in 1904, she was an organizer of the boycott that protested the Virginia Passenger and Power Company's policy of segregated seating on streetcars in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the department store. She opened that in 1905. And she also, so here's where the organizations come in. Um, she worked for the Order of St. Luke's, but she was in a ton of org- other organizations, including she was the vice president of the Richmond chapter of the NAACP um, later in life. But... Here are some other roles she held. Are you ready for this? So ready. Buckle in. Okay. The National Association of Colored Women. Okay. She was in the National Association of Wage Earners, the Council of Colored Women, Interracial Commission, International Council of Women of the Darker Races, National Negro Business League, and the Negro Organization Society. That's Pretty solid. <laughs> she had a lot going on for she sure. Did. And I'm just, she didn't have Google Cal probably, but yeah. if she did, <laughs> if she did, It'd be off the hook. Right. <laughs> Too many notifications <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so in 1921, she also ran for public office on the what they call Lily Black Republican ticket, and the ticket didn't do so well. She was running for superintendent of public instruction, so she lost, like, everybody else on the ticket. But 
you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And um, but that was a, a venture of hers as well. She tried to go into office. Yeah, also, she also lived in a, a really nice house in a really nice part of town um, in Virginia from 1905 to 1934. She lived in a Victorian townhouse in an elite black neighborhood in Jim Crow Richmond. Um, and it was pretty fancy. Like, it was kind of fancy. And she had some cool people come over. Like, she had some cool friends. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, and Langston Hughes. Um, but, yeah, her house was, like— I'm just trying to imagine this. When I think about families, like, who had so many children who were so huge, which yeah. I feel like doesn't happen that much anymore, but she had, I think I think it was, like, at once, at one point, like, dozens of rooms in the house. Like, she had more added on to the townhouse. I think it got up to 28 or 32 rooms or something Ooh. like that because there was a lot of family that was living in the house at one time. Like, Families had their own, like, yeah, parts sections. of the house, yeah. which I think is really cool. Um, and I think that's another conversation. That is a longer conversation to be had when it comes to continuing to nurture generations of the family within Black communities specifically. Um, another conversation to be had that we don't have time for <laughs> right now. Um, but, yeah, she had a huge uh, family and house that she lived in, and she lived well. Like, she was successful um, so later in her life, she did um, a lot more things. She fought for women's suffrage in the 19th Amendment, um, which prohibits the government from denying the right to vote on the basis of sex. Mm-hmm. And she just kept doing things after the bank was growing. So she's a first. She is. She's yeah. First. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, her story is really cool, and I love that she did do so much stuff to empower people in her community. Like, that was Mm -hmm. a big push for her. Um, So, an inspiring first, for sure. Yeah, and I think that the thing she did, it's also really good to look back on because, you know, a lot of, like, talk when it comes to the Black community and financial education, financial literacy, economic empowerment, and the Black dollar staying in the Black community is still a conversation that happens a lot right now and for good reasons, and we're also talking about reparations a lot right now because nobody got paid for the work that they did while they were enslaved. Um, But the things that Maggie did, I think people, it's easy to be able to to look to her as an inspiration or as a leader of what to do to economically empower people and to keep that goal on one's mind and to try new things, Mm -hmm. you know, and to continue to educate people. And she was just so... So determined and so headstrong at a time when it probably was easy not to be, you know? Like, it's probably easy to lose faith is what I mean by that. Right, right, right. So, yeah, I just, I think she's really cool. And, yeah, so do you want to move on to our next first? (laughs) Yeah, I like this. I feel like we're we're reviewing, like, two thumbs up, Maggie Walker. Yeah, you you, look— What we think about you is very important. Yes. Okay. And it does all the other stuff you've done, your accolades. Yes. It doesn't matter. When I say you're cool, you're cool. You're cool. <laughs> Eve gives you the cool stamp and you are set. You are set. <laughs> but yeah, let's let's move on to our other first, who, as I not so coolly pointed out is another woman whose name starts with M, but she's got other things going <laughs> on for her. That was so cool, Annie. Thank Don't you. down yourself like that. If Eves gives me the cool thumbs up, I, oh gosh. 
My life is made. (laughs) (laughs) What Annie and I were talking about earlier is that the similarities between these two people, Maggie Walker and Maria Taltief, which is who we're about to talk about. And Maria Taltief, like Maggie Walker, was the first woman to do a thing, but she was also the first Native American woman to do a thing. So she, um, ethnicity notwithstanding, she was the first. Mm -hmm. She was the first woman. And she was the first major prima ballerina in America. And she was the first, because she was Native American, she was also the first Native American to do that thing. But she was a pioneer in the field in general. Mm -hmm. So she was a prima ballerina for the New York City Ballet. That's how she got that first. (laughs) Um, Is, okay. So I, I have taken ballet. But prima ballerina... Um, for for people who don't perhaps know, please tell us. No, I don't know. Oh, um, I'm asking you. Oh, <laughs> um, isn't it? It's like the prime ballerina. <laughs> yeah, the principal dancer. Okay. Um, I haven't taken ballet either. <laughs> oh, you oh, said you have. I have. You have though. Yes. Okay, so you're on way, way more on point than I am. No, about apparently this. not. What is that called? The point? On point? <laughs> yeah, on point. point. The point. There was a ballet pun that just happened, but it was physical, <laughs> so it just fell flat on his face. <laughs> well, the day that we're able to somehow translate sound into also feeling or vision. Oh, yeah. When people can see what it, what's going on in the podcast studio. Then we're video. Then we're, <laughs> that's what that is called. <laughs> For now, podcast. we just narrate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can imagine, listeners, what it would be like to, like, watch something. That, we are visionaries. <laughs> But <laughs> if you can imagine what it's like to watch something. <laughs> well, there are I, levels to this. <laughs> we are ahead of our time right now. <laughs> but also who was ahead of her time is Maria Telchi. Maria Telchi was very ahead of her time. Yes. So she was born on January 24th, 1925. And she was born named Elizabeth Marie Telchi in Fairfax, Oklahoma, on the Osage Nation Reservation um, and her father was Alexander Joseph Tallcheap, who was a full-blooded Osage and a big-time real estate exec. And her mother was Ruth Tallcheap, who had Irish, Scottish, and Dutch roots. And at that time, the Osage were the wealthiest tribe in the U.S. since they had discovered oil on their land and everyone held mineral rights. But, you know, Maria still had some stuff going on in her family. Um, and her father had a drinking problem which often led to arguments with Maria's mother and the Osage were obviously still subject to persecution like Native American tribes were in America at the time from the federal government. So in 1884, the U.S. officially banned what they called, quote, pagan ceremonies. um, And they began imprisoning and even killing American Indians who took part in tribal religious ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And so throughout the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the government was enforcing laws that outlawed Native American traditions. And there's a rich, like, I don't want to say rich because that sounds positive, but there's a long history yeah. of uh, of Native Americans' practices being forcefully assimilated and being Christianized and yeah. so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Maria's grandmother, Eliza Big Heart Tallchief, still snuck Maria and her younger sister into secret tribal ceremonies when they were children. 
which is just really endearing to me. I don't know. It sounds really cute. Yeah. But <laughs> Maria was fascinated by all the outfits, the dancing, and the songs at the powwows, and that really stuck with her throughout her childhood and her lifetime. So when she was three, she went to her first ballet lesson um, in the basement of the Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time she was five, her ballet teacher already had her dancing on point, on the toe thing, the toe mm-hmm. thing, which um, is actually not great to start that early, essentially. Yeah. Maria also started piano lessons when she was young. Her mother really wanted her to be a concert pianist, but Maria wanted to do ballet. Like, that's where she really wanted. She did do piano lessons, but what she really wanted was ballet. Mm -hmm. So her family called her Betty Marie. When she was eight years old, her family moved to Beverly Hills, California. So under the guidance of the famed dancer and choreographer Ernest Belcher, Maria and her sister learned everything from ballet to acrobatics to tap dance. And Ruth was really excited to get her daughters out onto the stage. Mm -hmm. So sometimes she made them do these cringeworthy Native American dances that were really contrived Uh um, to be called tribal. So in 1938, Maria and her sister began studying. Basically from here, it's just ballet, ballet, ballet. Like, you know— When you're in something, you're in something. And as we know with a lot of people who were passionate artists, Mm -hmm. like, their lives become that art. Yes. And they just really delve into it. And that was, that was Maria's life Mm -hmm. um, from that point. So she basically really got heavy into ballet from here. So in 1938, she and her sister began studying under David Lachine. And his wife was a prima ballerina, Tatiana Rybalczynska. And Bronislava Nijinska, who was a notable ballet teacher and choreographer. Mm-hmm. So Nijinska was a really tough teacher who pushed her students to be dancers at all times, but not just when they were, like, practicing and performing. You make it a part of your life. And she really recognized Maria's talent, and they decided to cast her, or she decided to cast her in the ballet Chopin Concerto, which was performed at the Hollywood Bowl in 1940. Oh, wow. Yep, so Maria graduated from Beverly Hills High School in 1942, and she hit the ground running after that. She got a job as an extra in the film Presenting Lily Mars, which starred Judy Garland. Oh. We know. We all know. Yes. Well, I'm not going to make any assumptions, but... (laughs) (laughs) Never assume me. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) And soon after, she earned a spot at Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, which was a major ballet company at the time. And when she was performing with Ballet Russe, this is the time that she went from Betty Marie, as her family called her, to Maria Tallchief. One word. Originally in her name, it's Tallchief. It's two words, but she went to... She was already using Tallchief as one word, but she yeah. changed her first name to Maria mm-hmm. because her colleagues said that a more Russian-sounding name would help make her more appealing oh. and palatable to people. Wow. Yeah. So she started rising in the ranks, basically, she went from the corps de ballet to solo parts. Mm-hmm. She started being in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And the Russian choreographer, George Balanchine, who's been called the father of American ballet, really helped her sharpen her ballet skills um, over the years. So he helped her on the turnout or when they when dancers, like, rotate their legs outwards so the toes point away from each other. Yep. 
I'm trying to do my hands yeah, like they it were right doing now. the thing. They were doing the thing again. What do you know about this? Because yeah. you were in ballet. What am I? What am I talking about? Okay, so yeah. he trained her to become stronger, and he just really helped her embody the art of ballet. And she even once said, Maria even once said that she didn't fully understand ballet until he came around. Wow. So that ballet relationship turned into a more romantic relationship in 1946. The two of them, Maria and Balanchine, got married. When she was 21 and he was 42 years old. Ooh. So there was a big difference there. Yep. But that marriage didn't last too long. Mm-hmm. It only lasted six years. Yeah, but so it was a, it was a rough relationship. Yeah. Um, they didn't really jibe or mesh like that much, but why, at least not romantically. Mm-hmm. But while, while they were together and afterward, they collaborated a ton. So they went to France and Maria made her debut at the Paris Opera Ballet in 1947. And in 1948, Maria joined Balanchine's new company, the New York City Ballet. Mm-hmm. And she was prima ballerina there until 1965. Wow. Yeah, a long time. Yes. Yeah, a long time. I'm just thinking about, and I'm always fascinated by athletes, um, by their, like, what's, what's the word for it? Like, how they're able to do these really intense things for so, so long. long. Yeah. Like, that seems like so much stress on the body. It does. Yeah. I remember when um, Michael Phelps was like, Phelps mania, and it was like, this is what he eats every day, and this is his workout every day. What? Yeah. What? You have to have serious resolve to stay that dedicated to something that's so physical and so intensely physical. Yeah. And like you said, it it becomes your life. Yeah. Like everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. So we have a little bit more for you, but first we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So Maria rose to the top of the ballet world when she starred in The Firebird at the New York City Ballet. And her performance as the Sugar Plum Fairy in a version of Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker Mm -hmm. and a bunch of other roles that showed off her technical skill and her passion. And so she toured Europe and Asia and she performed with other ballet companies and even played Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova in the 1953 film Million Dollar Mermaid. So she was was talented. She did a lot of things. Sounds like it. (laughs) Sounds like it. (laughs) So during her life, she was always involved in the ballet world in some way, even after she retired from dancing and settled down with her family in Chicago. Um, She went on to become the director of ballet at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and she founded the Chicago City Ballet and was its artistic director from 81 until 87. Mm -hmm. So a lifetime, lifetime of achievements. So it's time for us to give her her Lifetime Achievement Award like we did with Maggie Walker. (laughs) (laughs) We've got the thumbs up. Ready to go. (laughs) You're cool. (laughs) Yeah, so that's, that's, that's Maria Talchief. That's, yeah, that's also a pretty amazing story. I didn't know she was in a film. Yeah. Um, So if you don't mind me asking, why did you pick these two, these two women? So I was, I want, okay, so sometimes they're selfish, you know. I want to know more about them, sure. too. Oh, gosh, yes. So um, I was already familiar with Maria, so we had an episode on her for this day in history class. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't as familiar with Maggie Walker, and I wanted to learn more about her. And mm-hmm. then, I, like I said earlier, I didn't realize the connection between 
the two of them in terms of the whole ethnicity and woman thing Mm -hmm. um, going on. But um, I figured that was a serendipitous occurrence. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so that's, it was just, I don't know. You know, sometimes you just don't know exactly why. Um, But they were the ones who jumped out to me. And I think it was also like a, even though they have their similarities, they're also in very different fields. Like one's an artist Mm -hmm. and one's a financial, like in the financial area, in the business development, um, social justice, economic justice kind of area and Mm -hmm. artists. But they're both equally, like they're both important. And they're both, people that we're able to look to when it comes to setting standards and setting goals Mm -hmm. and just being inspirational in general. So, yeah, that's probably part of it. And I also just think it's really good to highlight Black women who were working in the financial area because we, we do hear a lot about people or Black women in history who dealt with social justice, but not necessarily from the financial and banking angle of it. Yeah. So I thought it would be really cool to highlight her for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, and I had never heard of either of these women, so I'm very glad to to have two more inspirational women to, to look up to. Yeah, I hope that a lot of people haven't either, not because I don't want them to know about people, but because they get to learn about somebody else, mm-hmm. you know, some some new people today. And hopefully people will continue looking into their stories because we've only talked for so long. If, yeah. I don't know whose life you could fit into one hour. So, I mean, uh, yeah. you know, right. especially not these women. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, there's definitely so much more that if you're listening to this, and you're like, wow, I want to know everything. There's so much out there for you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that uh, this brings us about to the end of this, our first, first <laughs> female first. I'm going to come up with something. First, first female first. It's like 4-H, but 4-F. Forever. Inimitable. I feel like I'm making up words at this point. <laughs> Maybe that's what we need to do. I mean, we've learned from these women, you can't let barriers stop you. You need to... <sighs> We're learning already. See? See? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. We'll work on that off podcast. Um, but in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us, Eve. This has been really fun and educational. And uh, yeah, hopefully this will be a recurring first segment yes thank you for having me yes and so i'll um, be back soon oh i hope so <laughs> um and like we've mentioned you can hear eves on this day in history class and it's like five episodes a week right it's seven <gasps> it's every day it's every day <laughs> so I, I complain about my like two. <laughs> uh it's still a lot of work like what yeah. do you mean <laughs> we are all swapped here don't let's Ooh, not yes. get it confused <laughs> yes uh, yeah that is true so yes you can hear eves every day on this day in history class and i highly recommend that you check it out thank you annie this brings us to the end of this, our first episode of First. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it with my good friend, Eves. If you would like to email us about a first you would love to hear about, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, we are at momstuffpodcast. And on Instagram, we are at stuff I'm never told you. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening.